0: want to talk about a specific personage that we have several passages relating to Antichrist. A major personage of eschatology is Antichrist. So let me give you an introduction, and then we'll move as far as we can into a discussion of some of the passages dealing with Antichrist. There's different views... I think there's a lot of confusion concerning Antichrist, who is the Antichrist or what is it. There are some that believe that it's kind of a nebulous anti-Christian spirit, more of like an attitude rather than a personage. Some liberal churches have taken that viewpoint, but anymore liberal churches don't deal with any of these issues at all. They're more of a social gospel.
1: So, what is your first point there? Is that referring to the
0: Yes, and goes beyond them as well. Just a nebulous, unspecified, non personality, more of a spirit or an attitude. There are also some that believe that it is a specific demonic spirit, not a human spirit, but a demonic spirit that can manifest itself at any time. The spirit, and they get that from uh, 1 John 2. Eight, the spirit of Antichrist.
1: Is that um, without being a person? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes.
0: An unseen force even. Some would even describe it in that way. Some see worldly government as Antichrist, and certainly those totalitarian beasts that we've seen would support this idea. Worldly government that's antagonistic, totalitarian, anti-God, the historicist view that came about as a result of the Reformation was that Antichrist is the papacy. Whatever pope was ruling at the time, that was the Antichrist. There's a preterist view, and the preterist view would require what? Remember their view, they see most of prophecy fulfilled when? So do you. Before and ultimately in at seventy A.D., so everything has to take place in that first century time frame. Like Caesar. Yeah, they would have. They would tie it to Nero. So the preterist view, uh, the beast of uh, Revelation thirteen is the Roman Empire. This would be one of the writers would hold to that. His wounding would be and recovery would be the returning of Nero.
1: You're saying that. Uh they still look at Revelation and say they they say Nero. No, he can't. He returned.
0: Huh. so
1: if I was asked to ask you know you know one of my sons is a predator.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. You mentioned that.
1: So if I ask him who is the Antichrist, it'd be an interesting. I don't know. How well, he'll know.
0: identify. He'll say Nero, and Nero, they do point to some incident in the life of Nero, or it came to a near death experience, or some historical note on that. And they'll point to that, the wounding and Revelation 13. Nero did take names that were associated with divine titles, so they would make a big point of the names that Nero took. The seven heads would be from Augustus to Domitian, four all the way to Domitian, which would be later. Orns are other Caesars, but Nero would be the Antichrist.
1: Well, so what about right now? I I have a hunch that uh, Jeff would not dismiss that... Now, is he, is he a full preterist, or is he a moderate? I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that he listened to a debate between a preterist that was not a moderate with Tommy Ice.
0: Oh, wow. And he took the other guy's side. Wow. <laughs> Pretty convincing, then. Okay. Anyway, this is a common preterist viewpoint. But it would be Nero is basically the Antichrist. Probably the best view is you need to think of it kind of as a composite of the the revived Roman Empire along with its dictator. And the dictator epitomizes the empire. That's the view that I think if you put all of the passages together. Some passages seem to look at the whole empire, but more of them seem to specify an individual that dominates that empire. That makes sense? So that's the way I take it. Now I also take this passage, because this kind of is a little confusing or adds some confusion to our understanding unless you harmonize it. But in first John chapter two, verse eighteen, this is John, and, and by the way, it's only the apostle John that uses the, the word antichrist. I'm going to give you a whole list of other names and descriptions elsewhere. It's John that uses it, and I think it only occurs, I can't remember, six times or so, where he uses the word Antichrist. And this is the main one. 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. So John viewed first century time as the last hour. And from a Jewish perspective, Messiah could come at any moment and converted Jewish people anticipated Messiah coming, perhaps in their lifetime. Because prophetically, there's nothing in the prophets that speak of this 2,000-year period church age. So in a sense, the church age, the whole composite, is the last days. And I think that's what John is saying here. It is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. There is going to be a specific Antichrist in the future. John says it hasn't come yet. Even now, many antichrists have appeared. So even in the first century, there have been claims to messiahship, messianic figures. Now, the Jews of the first century would have classified Jesus as one of those many antichrists, one of those that claim messiahship. Many have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. In other words, we know we're living in the last days. Now, John didn't know that there'd be 2,000 more years attached to it. But the fact of many antichrists, and he's probably taking this from the Olivet Discourse and thinking in terms of the appearance of false Christ. So there is a sense in which there are false messianic figures. I don't want to use the word types, but more illustrations or prefiguring of a spirit of Antichrist or a embodiment of characteristics of an Antichrist that have occurred all the way even before Jesus Christ, messianic figures that were false Christs.
1: Ray, do you think that some of these Antichrists in that first century uh, could still form uh, things that like extra-natural, extra-natural
0: Powerful things. There are some, yeah, there are some, I don't know if I'd say they're miracles, but... Extranatural. Yeah, extranatural is probably a good way of describing them. And so... Uh, but great powers of deception, great powers of deception, that's a number one characteristic. Do you think
1: that might have accompanied some of
0: these? I think the so. Sunrise? Yeah, I think so, because they swayed, in some cases, millions early in the first century. Well, in fact, I'm going to give you a... A list of them here.
1: Did Josephus uh, cover any of that? I don't remember.
0: Yes, he does speak of messianic claims. I think what John is describing in 1 John 2.18 are these that have appeared in the first century and we probably have had manifestations of them during the church age. But he also is specific. There is one. There's going to be an antichrist. These others have the spirit of Antichrist. It's another phrase that John uses. And I think those that have manifested this have these characteristics. They're very charismatic. They're skilled politicians. They're extremely successful. They're arrogant. And I think the major characteristic is they're extremely deceitful. To be able to sway the thinking and the loyalty of individuals. They seem to be articulate. In other words, they can speak. They're orators. They're convincing speakers. They all are statists. What I mean by that is they all have this one world mentality. In other words, a world system. And I think they're all demonic.
1: You know, in a small group, I would say it's a whole
0: lot like. Well. And I don't, I'm not saying that likely. I mean. No, I understand that, and I th- I think there are some elements that you can describe. A lot of people that have these characteristics through history.
1: He had the personal characteristics, but he was all- and he was also
0: yes. Well, he had all of these characteristics.
1: And um, some of those
0: characteristics, I think, you could find in the writings of Timothy, Peter, because they talked about the yes prophets and the way that they came out. Well, this comes comes from a comp, I put this together from a composite of the scriptures that describe that one. I mean, these don't just come out of the air. These come as, these are the descriptions of the Antichrist as well. But I think they're broad enough that we can look at them in terms of characteristics of that spirit of Antichrist that I think has manifested itself throughout history. It's going to be a future one in the tribulation that is going to be dominant over all other messianic claims. And some of these other passages are more specific to the great tribulation. I think John is describing the antichrist that existed in the first century, false Christ, and would also probably persist through the church age. So I have kind of two classifications, those that fit the characteristics and that one specific one, that'll be the epitome of all the others. Make sense? Mm-hmm. And here's just some false ones in the first century. Preterists have theirs. The Preterists will attach an individual by the name of uh, Thutis, described in Acts 5.36, 30 AD. Acts 5.36, under Simon the Sorcerer, who may be... An antichrist who swayed many in chapter eight. Josephus, you were asking about him in the book that I've got, page four eighteen. If you want to look it up, if you have the same Josephus, he may be one of these that is described in the book of Acts.
1: I lost you. You said referred to something in
0: Acts chapter eight. Uh, Simon the sorcerer, nine through eleven. There was also a figure called Judas the Galilean. There's no scripture associated with him. And by the way, there are several passages in Josephus. I've got a whole list of them. There was an Egyptian false prophet that he refers to and some others that he names. Imposters, that's a word from Josephus. Manchem in Josephus as well. Then later in 135 AD, Simon bar Kokba, who led a rebellion claimed messiahship, and there was others as well. Moses of Crete in the first century. There was one out of Baghdad in 720 AD. Others all the way into modern times, and more recently, messianic figures. Sung Moon in 1917 claimed messiahship. Supposedly, there's a figure that has never been identified they call him Maitreya, a New Age messianic figure. Khomeini has made messianic claims, claims of saviorhood. You might even include Jim Jones, who took a small group. There have been others. Okay, that's an introduction. And that's probably a good place to end for today. And we'll pick up from there and look at Antichrist again next next week. And then we'll also look at the true Christ and the second second coming. Last week I gave a brief introduction, I think it was like about 15, less than 15 minutes on Antichrist, and one of the things I just stressed was that this is a confusing area for some, and I gave you several views that people hold to it, and obviously we want to See what the Scriptures say. Now, some would say that this is a sensational area, but the counter to that is that Paul writes to, for example, the Thessalonians, and he refers to the Antichrist, and these are baby Christians. He writes to them within months of the founding of the church there in Thessalonica. Also, John is addressing young men, young people, as well as others as well, but he's the one that uses the word Antichrist. So I would say it's neither sensational nor a doctrine that is one that we should avoid, and we need to be aware of it. And I think the main application we can draw as well, there's things that we can apply personally and in our culture and in our churches relating to this doctrine of Antichrist. And probably the main application that we can draw is just from the concept of deception because that's the essence of what he will be doing during the time that he is operating as well as other political, religious, economic things. But one of them is a whole administration of deception. So it will help us to understand that deception is out there, how to detect it, how to know about it, to warn people about it, and I think that's what we need to focus in on in terms of a personal application. So in that introduction, we talked a little bit about these things, and what we want to do is just identify who this person is, and I kind of defined him. Sometimes in some of the passage it seems to refer to the entire empire that he will lead. But most of the time it refers to an individual, a personage. So I think he would be the epitome of the empire and, in fact, the, the focus of it. We also mentioned concerning in our introduction, we, we looked at that First uh, John 2.8 passage that refers to Antichrist and speaks of the spirit of Antichrist. And that the spirit of Antichrist was already in operation in the first century. And we talked about two concepts of Antichrist. In other words, Antichrist refers to perhaps anyone that would be a false messiah, regardless of time frame. And I gave you a list of a few of them that actually appeared in the first century that were false messiahs. Jesus would have been classified as a false messiah by the nation of Israel because he made messianic claims, obviously. So we could even say that there are messianic figures that express the spirit of Antichrist at any point in church history. And i give you a list of those characteristics that you can uh, look at in terms of what to expect in terms of the spirit of Antichrist who will be, which will be epitomized in the ultimate and final Antichrist. So that's what we did last time. So let's take a look at his person and the origin. First of all, let's look up a couple of passages. Revelation eleven seven. 7. Sheila, do you want to get that one? And Vivian, do you want to get 13, 1? And Jim, Daniel 7, verses 20 through 25. All of these passages give us a little hint concerning the origin of Antichrist, and if you have Revelation eleven seven, this is one that refers to this abyss. You got it?
2: Yep. When they finish their testimony, beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit or against them, overcome them.
0: Or your translation, bottomless pit, translates one word in the Greek text, abyss, abyssos, I think is the way you pronounce it, or abyssos, can't remember exactly. That's why we get the English word abyss from the Greek word. There's also Revelation 17:8 that refers to him coming out of the abyss. Seems to be a place of confinement for demonic spirits, which looks at more his spiritual origin. And then verse 13, and most commentators take this in a certain way. After you read it, I'll explain that. 13, 1, Revelation.
3: And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous
0: blasphemous names. So he comes out of where? In that passage? Out Out of the sea. And when we refer to the sea, that usually in relationship to the land of Israel. In fact, directions in scripture, particularly prophetic scriptures, when it refers to the north, it's always north of Israel. When it refers to the sea, it's talking about the Mediterranean. And I think what that alludes to, if it's not clear, the surrounding nations around the Mediterranean, he comes out of that environment or out of that culture, you might say. So it would be out of the European nations that somewhat surround the Mediterranean Sea, at least to the north. And there are at least three different ideas concerning where he's coming from. And I think this verse is probably one that I lean towards to identify. And I think he's European, which would mean that he's probably Gentile, probably non-Jewish. And some argue against that and say, well, how would the nation of Israel enter into covenant with a non-Jew? Well, they've done it historically. And with the deception that's going to go on at that point, and particularly by the Antichrist, I think it's very much conceivable, and that's not a problem. So I take probably the best interpretation would be the one that identifies him as Gentile out of the Gentile nations in the European area. Another viewpoint is that that's gaining popularity today because of the rise of uh, Islam is that he's going to be a Muslim. In fact, there's a couple of websites you can go to, and they give a defense for a Muslim antichrist. Uh, some of the passages that they use to support it, I think they stretch them too much to, to really hold to them as support. And the only reason they do that is because I think Islam seems to be gaining in such power and is so ferocious that uh, it's easy to conceive of a Muslim antichrist.
3: It wasn't here last week, but it would seem like if he was a master of deception that he would be telling the... Israel, that he'd be protecting them from, Muslims. I mean, from the Muslims. And Can I think that's U.S. part,
0: yeah, I think yeah. exactly. And we did say it was last week, I think so, that what begins that seven-year period is a period of peace, and it appears that he's the one that is able to establish a temporary false peace is what we described it as. And I think that would be one element, in other words, peace in the Middle East with Israel and their Arab neighbors. And he seems to be ahead or comes out of a ten-nation empire. Now, it's not so clear, but if you put them all together, uh, this probably fits the same time frame, Daniel 7, 20 through 25. You got that one?
1: Jim? In the meaning
0: of the ten horns
1: that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. The Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one.
0: Notice the reference to a particular personage there. Keep reading. In the
1: time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Which will be different
0: from all the, all other kingdoms. Now that kingdom described in the context is this ten nation empire, which most scholars accept as probably European.
1: It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings and he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into him his hand for a time, times, and a half time.
0: There's that cryptic phrase that we've been talking about. That seems to clearly identify this personage that takes control of this ten-nation empire, but from that context, he seems to come out of it, which would be European. European. Now there are some that also identify the ten nations as the Islamic nations, but I think the support is very, very weak for that. So that is the origin, and you might even say, as we talked about last time, he's a member and comes from the unholy trinity that we described last time. In just a review here of that, we saw that the dragon. The dragon is clearly identified, Revelation twelve nine, as Satan himself. He's the counterfeit first person, first person of the unholy trinity or demonic trinity, however you want to describe him. The second person is the first beast of Revelation 13. He's the counterfeit of Christ, so we call him Antichrist. Being the second person, he is the incarnation of Satan himself. The earthly representative of the dragon, that's the first beast. And then the second beast is described as the false prophet. He gives glory to the first beast and causes people to worship the first beast. So he's the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit, who does not draw attention to himself, but instead glorifies the Father and the Son. So this is the origin of this personage. He comes out of the unholy trinity. And there are a lot of names that describe this personage. And I've got a list of them. And I think there's more than these. He's called Antichrist. That's 1 John 2.22. Son of Destruction, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Lawless One, same context, 2 Thessalonians two eight, man of lawlessness. Also verse three, probably should put those together there. Son of destruction, man of lawlessness, and then the lawless one. He's described as having a fierce countenance. That's Daniel eight twenty three. He's called a despicable person. Daniel eleven twenty one, worthless shepherd. Zechariah eleven. 16 and 17. Now I've got these out of order, kind of, because I've got, I want to fit them all on one slide. So I've got the long descriptions on the left and the shorter ones on the right. So he's the one that makes desolate. That's Daniel 9. That's the one that Jesus refers to in Matthew 25, verse 15. The beast, you know where that one comes out of, Revelation 13. The little horn, it's out of Daniel. Daniel 7, verse 8. He's called the prince. That's also in the Daniel 9 passage, 9.26. He's called a willful king in Daniel 11.36. So those are some of the names that describe Antichrist. I mentioned last time, John is the only one that identifies him as Antichrist. But I think that name sticks because it kind of is the best descriptive phrase to kind of give the impression that he's a counterfeit messianic figure all the others mainly describe something of his character and his nature we can also pull out from some of the passages elements of his personality what is his personality like and we have some overlap here you could even include some of those names for hit for example he's a personage that is a lawless person so you could include that one as kind of a personality trait. Uh, Highly intelligent, very bright. Daniel 78 describes him, uh, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man. And in Daniel, in other contexts, the eyes are related to, full of observations. In other words, the ability to perceive and to take in data and information pointing to intelligence it's not that he has physically many eyes, but that he has the characteristic that he has the ability to, to see things. He's arrogant. There's several passages on that one, Daniel 7, 8. That passage says that he has a mouth uttering great boasts. Bigger than life, Daniel seven twenty was larger in appearance than his associates. And I would say not just in appearance, but in presence, you might even say. Bigger than life. Master politician, 8.3, Daniel. Skilled in intrigue. A master in intrigue is the way the NIV translates it. Very successful, 8.24. Says he will perform his will and will succeed in whatever he does. So he's going to rise very rapidly to a very high position. Very successful. Then the main characteristic, deceitful. Daniel 8.25, and through his shrewdness, he will, will cause deceit to succeed. And we saw the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, and you could include the man of lawlessness and also the son of destruction, a lawless one. So the personality of lawlessness and demonic, demonic Revelation 13.2, and we'll we'll look at that passage in a little more detail in a moment. So these are some of the characteristics. Along with intelligence, you could include wisdom as well. Characteristics, beastly in character. In fact, we see these in Revelation 13. Let's turn to that passage, if you haven't already. We read verse 1. Vivian read that one. And John sees a beast. We have a description of that beast. And that description primarily comes out of the Daniel passage that we looked at as well. Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems. In other words, these are governments or nations. Blasphemous names on, on his head, so he's beastly in character. That verse also indicates that he will be global. So this is not a local personage, not just isolated to Israel, but global in fact, others in time in history that have displayed the spirit of Antichrist have generally been somewhat local. They aspired to world power, and some of them have become close. Probably the closest is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but later others like Hitler himself had all of those characteristics I gave you. This one will be global, so he will be a global king. You get that thirteen two? Thirteen one. Ten horns, seven heads, an empire. In other words, it's a beast that will be global. Now, the ten ten nations will be the kind of the base of operation, but it will extend through the whole empire. And the blasphemous idea, in other words, he's going to proclaim things that are anti-God, and in fact, he's going to be egotistical. We'll see that further in, but you can already pick that up in verse 1. Let's read verse 2. Eric, do you want to pick up there?
4: And the beast beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, and his throne and
0: his great word. All right. Now that description also comes out of Daniel, so he's going to be a composite of all those ancient empires. And the epitome of their evil will be seen in this personage. And again, he's identified as a beast. And notice the source of his power. There's another reference to the unholy trinity, the dragon. And we saw that that's identified in the previous chapter. That's the source of his power. So this is demonic. This is satanic. And he has a throne and great authority. In other words, he will be a totalitarian leader. Totalitarian He will be the ultimate of all totalitarian figures that we've seen historically. Great authority. You could even say that he is a supernatural person, probably demon-possessed even. And at least the source of his power is Satan himself. We already saw that he came out of the abyss and that uh, he's going to display supernatural miracles. He seemed to be a personal being. He's referred to with a personal pronoun. Verse two, see how many personal pronouns do we find in here? Verse one, on his head were blasphemous names. Verse two, his feet, personal pronoun, his mouth, his power, his throne. And then verse three, and I saw, I saw one of his heads personal pronouns, personal being. And we ought to read verse 3. Sheila, do you want to do that? Or...
2: And I saw one of his heads as if it been, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed east.
0: Okay, some more personal terms there. His head, he was slain or had been slain, his, his fatal wound. But notice something spectacular is going to take place here. A seemingly, if not... Maybe even a real miracle. If it's a real miracle, it's a satanic miracle. It appears to be something of a counterfeit death and resurrection. must be really charismatic. Very charismatic. I mean, mean, just, I don't mean it in a Christian sense. Yeah, definitely. Very charismatic. Miracle worker is another characteristic. And here's Vivian's word here. A charismatic man. One step ahead of me. Yes, uh, very charismatic. In fact, he will captivate the entire world. That's what verse 3 says. And the whole world was amazed, followed after the beast. There's the totalitarian, there's the global aspect, again in verse 3. And since we're there, we ought to go ahead and read verse 4. Do you want to do that one, baby?
3: They worship dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the
0: beast, and who is able to wage war with him? So just a further expansion on this worship. And notice it's twofold. And notice the, uh, the third personage, or the second beast, is not mentioned there. Later on, it's going to talk about the second beast encouraging the worship of the first beast. But you have two of the members of the satanic trinity there. So there is something of a sense. In other words, they are worshiping Satan himself, and not only Satan, but the beast as well the antichrist so he's a counterfeit god you could say counterfeit god okay verse 5 jim
1: and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words
0: and blasphemies authority to act for two for 42 months was given to him there's that little phrase again 42 months three and a half years here's one of the passages. And this is probably, I think this is the first three and a half, where he rises to power and he reaches a peak, and then things begin to to crumble underneath him. We'll see that in a moment. But notice the beginning there. There's another reference to his arrogance. So let's put that on the slide. One of the characteristics is arrogance and blasphemies. And again, we have authority there, which looks at his global aspect, his totalitarian aspect, his counterfeit God aspect. Many characteristics right in one passage there. Now we can contrast the beast. In fact, let's contrast the beast with a lamb. And the contrasts are so striking. This is the reason why it the title Antichrist is very appropriate, and I've got a whole list of them. I've just picked out the major ones. Beast, as opposed to lamb, He's the image of Satan, whereas Jesus is the exact image of God. He's out of the abyss, and you know where Jesus comes from. Not simply from Mary, but from heaven, Exactly. Antichrist is called man of sin, man of lawlessness, and Jesus obviously is the sinless one. He's a totalitarian king, and Jesus ultimately will be king of kings, king of kings. Charismatic, Jesus is humble and remains humble. He will rule from humility. Deceiving miracles in the Antichrist and the miracles of Christ are confirming that he is of God. Now you might say that these miracles are confirming miracles of of uh, Antichrist as well, but they're confirming that he's of Satan. And we've already seen the second person of the unholy trinity as opposed to the second person of the biblical trinity. Major contrast. So that's the person of Antichrist. Let's take a look at the program or what does he accomplish? What are his... What is his platform, you might say? He does have a career that is described. And I think what he does is he fills, it appears that in this time frame, he's going to fill a vacuum, a vacuum of leadership, and probably a vacuum of corrupt leaders. And he's going to be, he's going to appear to be the very opposite. He's gonna certainly display success and leadership qualities, and in contrast to others, people are gonna easily follow after him. Now, at the time frame that we're living in, I think 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 8, You probably need to read that one. Eric? Want to get to 2 Thessalonians there? And beginning in verse 3.
4: Let no one in any way deceive you where it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now he's ta- talking
0: about the day of the Lord and events associated with the day of the Lord, if you go all the way back to verse 1. Keep going. So he's talking about this apostasy, and Jim pointed out that there is a viewpoint that that word there could refer to the rapture. It could be taken either way, or it could refer to this falling away.
4: Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That kind of is the
0: clearest passage that tells us what he will accomplish. In other words, and I think that is in the middle. Uh, Jesus identifies that and ties it to Daniel. Daniel says it's in the middle of that seven-year period. This is the abomination that makes desolate. In the temple himself, a Gentile makes himself out to be God. Keep reading.
4: And you know what restrains him now.
0: There you go. There's the restrainer. So he's
4: restrained right now. Oh I'm sorry I skipped verse five.
0: You skip verse five. Sorry,
4: do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now. So that in his time he will be revealed. So he will be revealed in his
0: time And I think what identifies him is the signing of the covenant, because that's what Daniel says kicks off that seven-year period. Now, if the rapture takes place before the signing of the covenant, which I believe, if you're pre-tribulational, then you have to put it before that, then the church obviously will not be here. And putting that with that passage, it makes sense that the restrainer that the Thessalonians knew, because apparently... Paul had already discussed that. We can conclude that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and when the church has taken out that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ or in individuals, he is removed. And he's going to continue to minister, the Holy Spirit will, but not in the same way as he does in the indwelling presence of individual believers. And I think this also refers to the church as being the salt of the earth. We are the preservers of culture. And when the church is removed, that restraint is removed. And the Holy Spirit is the one that uses us as a body to restrain evil in the world. That is going to be lifted by that verse or that passage there. Keep reading.
4: The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of
0: That's what we just described here. It's the personal pronoun. He, -hmm. probably Holy Spirit.
4: Then that lawless one will, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of
0: his coming. And we'll refer back to that verse at the end. That'll be the end of Antichrist. So there's a restraining of him, That passage also refers to the middle of the tribulation when he proclaims himself to be God. There's going to be a covenant between this personage and Israel. That's the Daniel 9, 727 passage that we've looked at before. He brings peace, Revelation 6, 2. We saw that one last time as well. This is a false peace. Now Paul refers also to that in 1 Thessalonians, a false peace and is taken away with the second seal judgment. We saw that when we were looking at the seal judgments. He will rise to power. I think the passage we looked at in Daniel 8, that refers to that, 23 through 25. It will be a rapid rise. The Revelation passage indicates that he has authority for three and a half years, and I take that to be the first three and a half years. And Revelation 13 indicates that it's a worldwide, totalitarian, global rulership. And we just looked at that passage. So those are the main elements that Scripture speak in terms of what will be the career of any Christ, at least during the Tribulation. So he will have political power. That's All of these come out of Revelation 13. He will have economic power. And actually, back to political power, we need to look at a couple of other verses. Let's read Daniel eight twenty-four. Sheila, do you want to get that one? And Vivian, Daniel eleven forty through forty-two. Jim, Revelation seventeen thirteen. This is political power. 8, 24.
2: His power shall be mighty but not by his own. He shall destroy fear and shall prosper. He shall destroy the mighty and also
0: the... Okay, several references to his mighty power. And again, personal pronouns there. It's a destructive power, destroyed to an extraordinary degree. 11.40, and then keep reading.
3: At the At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots.
0: Now the north, probably maybe Russian forces to the south, Egyptian or African, who knows. And then again, personal pronoun, he, keep reading.
3: With horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall.
0: That's Israel.
3: But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels.
0: So he's victorious. He's victorious. He takes spoils of war, I guess you could say there, stretching out his hand against other countries.
3: Where was his army?
0: His army. The Ten, the ten, ten Nation is his kind of power base. Revelation 17:13. We also saw by the way you could include that Revelation 13 that we er- read or- earlier, where it talks about the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. But also 17:13, you got that one, Jim. Mm-hmm.
1: These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast.
0: Power and authority is given to the beast. Context, the nations or Gentiles, 10 nations. So political power Economic power, we're going to look at it in Revelation 13. Turn back to it. Eric, you want to read 16 and 17. Now, this is the second beast. He's also a personage. He's also referred with personal pronouns.
4: And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slave, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So
0: that's total control over the economic system. You can't buy or sell unless you have given allegiance to that first beast. So he's going to control the world economic system. And we can see how that could be done, computer chips, computer scan, scanning, Identifying marks. So he will be a political personage. He'll be an economic power. He will also have religious power. And we saw that in Revelation 13 as well. The whole world will follow after him. He will experience this supernatural miracle. We also saw in Second Thessalonians 2, he sets himself in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. And he will receive worship as God that Daniel 11.36, I think we read it already, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and will prosper until the indignation is finished. And then the verse, verse goes on. And his, his words are blasphemous. So he will perform signs and wonders... Revealing his religious aspect. He exalts himself. These are just a summary of some of the verses we've looked at here. Dominates the government. In fact, the, the harlot. I identified the harlot in Revelation 17 as apostate, one world religion. And it rides the beast. So the religious aspect will dominate the government. And the world will worship him. Revelation 13. A specific act that he performs is he kills the two witnesses. These are the prophets that God raises up to call Israel to repentance. And it says it happens in the middle, or after the three and a half years of their ministry, which I take the first three and a half. And then in the temple he proclaims himself to be God himself. That's the abomination of desolation. Major religious deeds, or acts. You could add one more. He persecutes the the believers. Wears down the saints, is Daniel's description. Persecution. It will be religious persecution. Anti-Semitic, beginning with the Jewish people, but it'll spill over to any that proclaim allegiance to any god apart from Antichrist himself. On a timeline, here's our seven-year period of time. He signs a covenant, just kind of the sequence that seems to fit. He raises to power, controls 10 nations, that's his power base. And eventually that uh, works itself out to a worldwide totalitarian government. And he continues to rise for three and a half years, proclaims himself God in the temple in Jerusalem, that's the abomination that makes desolate. And then I see the last three and a half years of him declining, ending in the final battle of Armageddon. And at that point, he is destroyed and judged. See that? Actually, we saw that last time. We talked about the judgments. So there's your career of the Antichrist in broad strokes. So that's his program. Let's look at his passing. And the last thing that we have here is his destruction. Which I've already mentioned. Daniel 7. Sheila, look up that one again. Should have, should have had Jim stay there because it's the next passage after the one Jim read. And read uh, 11, Vivian. Daniel, Daniel 11. So Daniel 7 first and then Daniel 11. Uh, 7, 26 and 27.
2: But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his demand, consume and destroy in the kingdom and the greatness of the kingdoms under the saints of the Most High. His kingdom everlasting, and all demons shall
0: serve him. The removing of this kingdom and given over, that's millennial, given over to the saints. And then Daniel 11, 40, uh, reading into that a little bit. I think that describes Armageddon, and we looked at passages that describe Armageddon last week when we looked at the judgment of Armageddon, but here's another passage, Daniel eleven forty and on.
3: the time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Yeah, you read that.
0: Yeah, uh, read beyond. Yeah, read into forty three, forty five.
4: I'll start with. Uh, but
0: notice the gathering of armies. It doesn't mention Armageddon, but I think this is this parallel sum that we have where it identifies Armageddon.
3: I'll start at 43. All right. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and the like, annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between
0: the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him come to his end, probably at Armageddon. And that Second 2 Thessalonians 2.8 identifies Christ slaying him with the sword of his mouth. I think Eric read Second 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And you can include those other passages, Revelation 16, that describes that bloody battle, but that's where Antichrist comes to his end. It'll take place in the Jezreel Valley. That's what the Jezreel Valley looks like from Mount Carmel a vast valley. There's Megiddo. I'll show you a slide of it, but this whole area in there, the final battle. And in fact, the Revelation chapter 14 describes the blood flowing to the bridles bits for 200 miles. Very bloody. Looked at that last time. And there's Megiddo that overlooks. See it on the map there. If you're looking east from Megiddo, that's the Jezreel Valley. Very fertile used to be a swamp uninhabitable because of the malaria there when the Jews took it over in 1948 they drained it and since then they produced a tremendous place for crops lots of exports there unfortunately it'll be the scene of the final battle that'll essentially destroy that valley again and that looks at the same valley and some of the locations of other sites there Mount Tabor Moray Mount Gilboa Nazareth, uh, you can see it from here. It's a fairly large city, but it's off the slide there.
2: Isn't it fascinating that Hollywood just contains replicas that, that could be accurate? Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. Bizarre.
0: Yeah. It just shows that there's a lot of truth that the unbelieving world has to depend on to prop up their unbelieving worldview. Yeah. Exactly. So
4: how do the Jews view it? I know it comes in the New Testament, written by a Jewish man. um, Well, the Daniel 11 is... Exactly. So obviously they're familiar with this, but what are they, what's their viewpoint? What do they think about? Do they spiritualize it or? Well,
0: there's all these camps. There's all, you know, today there's a large number of atheistic Jews. In other words, they've abandoned God. You know, the Holocaust proves there's no God. How could he allow any people, much less our people, to experienced just horrendous things, you know, where has he been, you know, a whole argument there. Then you have kind of the, what are called, Reformed Jews, that would be the next category. They're, they're basically liberal, so they would spiritualize. Okay. Yeah. And then you have the other more conservative Orthodox Jews, and you have a variety even within, ultra-Orthodox, etc., they would be more literal in their interpretation, but they're a very, very small even
4: in So before nineteen forty eight, I mean you would see this as a swamp land, how in the world would they have a battle? It would be kind of the idea, but then now that it's been drained and it's possible, would that change the minds of wait a minute, this could be a reality? Well the majority of them don't look at scripture anymore. In yeah. Other words. yeah. So
0: that small minority, even them, they still have kind of a almost a distorted view of of scripture as well. By the way, I don't know uh, if you remember, remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus started his ministry in the synagogue and he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he read from it, closed the scroll and said, Today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Remember that passage? And what did they do? What did uh, When he said that, this is fulfilled today, they knew what he was talking about (laughs) because they knew that was a messianic passage. Who is this guy? Remember what they did?
4: They tried to run him off the cliff. Yeah, they tried to run him off the cliff. The cliff is right here
0: overlooking this valley. There's Nazareth there. That photograph that I showed you that was looking this way, captured, I guess, most of this area in here, and Nazareth is just right off the slide there. In fact, that one there. And that one, that one there. So Nazareth would be right in this area right. And the last thing that we want to look at is Revelation 19. We looked at this last time, but let's read it again. 19, 19 through 20. Is it your turn, Jim? Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 20 and 19, 19
1: and 20. And I saw the
0: beast, the kings of the earth
1: and their armies... Assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with
0: brimstone. So that's the judgment of Antichrist and the second beast or false prophet. And that's also a description of the end of the Battle of Armageddon. And it's Jesus Christ that is judging here. And that would parallel the Second Thessalonians two eight passage. That he will slay him with the sword of his mouth.
3: You may have covered this last week. What kind of uh, presence does Satan I mean? What kind of what? Presence is you, spirit, I mean, behind the scenes, Satan, the dragon?
0: Well, he's an angelic creature.
3: Right. So, I mean, he's kind of... Like being the counterfeit
0: God, he's the first person. He's like spirit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, angelic. But he's not. He's not omnipresent. But he doesn't have an actual human presence. Well, I think what he does is he takes possession of humans and can operate that way. And so do demons. He probably takes possession of Antichrist himself. I'm just saying. Yeah, just right. He would consider him uh, an angelic creature. So he'd have all the characteristics of angels. It's a little early, but let's take a, a break. Maybe we'll take two breaks today. Let's make the first one short then, and we'll come back and look at the second coming. Sheila, since you're here, do you want to close for us real quick?
2: Lord, thank you for today, for reading uh, to the Scripture that teaches us about things to come and for opening our eyes to judgment, to your grace, and that utilize the grace and um, build up and encourage Pray for those who can again next week with you until...
0: Amen.